0: The Bakari Sellers podcast tackles the most pressing current events through conversations and interviews
1: with high-profile guests.
2: Building upon his experience in South Carolina government and politics and his experience as a lawyer, Sellers will talk to his guests about all topics from the world of politics. Check out the Bakari Sellers podcast on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts.
1: Pure Leaf Blackberry Iced Tea. Visit Amazon.com/PureLeaf and enter TWENTY PURE LEAF. That's TWENTY PURE LEAF for twenty percent off your purchase of new Pureleaf Blackberry Iced
2: Tea.
1: Welcome to the Dave Chang Show, part of the Ringer Podcast Network, presented by Major Doma Media. Thank you, Yola Tango, as always, for the intro music and the outro music. We have today as our guest, my good friend Morgan Neville, Oscar-winning director for 20 Feet from Stardom. If you haven't seen that, you should. He has made documentaries on Keith Richards, Iggy Pop, Mr. Rogers. He has done a lot of epic work and one of the great filmmakers out there and I'm honored and lucky to consider him my partner in TV. We've made Ugly Delicious together. We are making a show on Hulu that should be, I don't know, coming out soon, uh, next few months and I think he is just an extraordinarily good person and one of the very few people I think that could do the documentary on Anthony Bourdain's life justice. Um, And uh, we get into a conversation with that. Um, It's not an easy conversation. I still have a hard time talking about Tony's death. It's still hard to move on. And after three years or so, it's still remarkable to see the imprint his life has had on so many others. And uh, man, I don't know what else to say about that other than go watch the movie uh, Roadrunner. It's coming out July 16th in theaters. Please check it out. I think it'll go on to streaming a month after, but it should give you some insight into his life. It is It uh, doesn't go into everything. I think that would be impossible. You would need like 25 hours, but uh, Morgan did the amazing job of giving some clarity and hopefully some resolution to everyone that misses Tony. Yeah, I mean, I, I remember doing a podcast way back when, a couple of years ago, whenever Tony died, and that was um, that was emotional. And, and I think uh, anybody that listens uh, to this podcast knows uh, about my feelings about that and mental health. Um, but know that you're not alone, and um, don't forget to ask for help, and that's oftentimes the hardest thing to do. Uh, but the people that seem to be doing the best don't assume that they are in a good place. Uh, you never know. And that's why we are all needed to help each other out. But it's, it's a it's a very good movie, very entertaining. And Ying and I get into a conversation with Morgan Neville, the director of Roadrunner. Please, please, please go check it out. Um on a different note, and there's no way to make a transition outside of that, uh, because anytime you think about Bourdain, it it uh for at least for me, it's it's pretty, pretty heavy shit. But uh, I will do my best and go directly into frozen foods and Dairy Queen and milkshakes. Um, I hadn't been to a Dairy Queen in a long time. In a very, very, very long time. And The place I wanted to get ice cream for my son was uh, there was a roadblock. There was a construction. I couldn't do it. But uh, I said, well, let's let's go to Dairy Queen. I haven't been there in a while. And the Dairy Queen I grew up with only had frozen treats. There's one, I think there's still one on 14th Street between 6th and 7th in New York City. But for the most part, I grew up with a Dairy Queen that didn't have savory food, They had chicken fingers and hamburgers and the such. But it's been quite some time since I've been to one because I'm a big fan of the Blizzard. And I don't know what happened. The menu's fucking massive, man. It is so big. And I'm wondering, is it too much? And I always wrestle with this question when you know I make menus and I don't make menus anymore. But when I did, how do you navigate it? How do you make it so it's not just legible and easy to understand, but makes it enticing, makes it easy to figure out what you want. And I don't know if it is easy for Dairy Queen regulars. I'm not, but I was like, wow, that's a ton of stuff. And I thought, I'm just going to get some blizzards. But even that was difficult because now they have super deluxe blizzards. There's like three different categories within the blizzards. And I panicked. I totally panicked. Do you guys ever feel that as well when you're ordering, whether you're drive through or you're just, your mind goes blank. You know what you want to order and you panic. I don't know why, but if you understand what I'm talking about, I'm telling the nice person behind the cash register what I want. And I just, I totally panicked. And the size of the menu made me panic. And I ordered like a drumstick cone with peanuts. And then I didn't even get what I wanted, which was an Oreo blizzard, just plain. And I got like a Snicker thing. I got two blizzards that I didn't like, and I just wanted some classics. And I wanted to talk about that. Do menus freak you out sometimes because it's too intimidating? I know that's the case when people look at a wine list and oftentimes it's meant to be intimidating, but I was shocked. The last place I ever expected to have that that anxiety of ordering, was at a fast food place at Dairy Queen. And it's been a long time since I've been to one and um, I totally freaked out. I didn't even get what I wanted for my, for Hugo. I want to, instead of giving him a small blizzard or a small milkshake, I got him a double dipped cone, which he did not like. The whole thing was, was a disaster and I'm, I'm scared to go back. Because that menu was intimidating, which is why I, I just love In and Out. I, I listen. We don't have to go with the the pros and cons of something like In and Out, but I really appreciate the simplicity. I really love that you can only get two things or three things: drinks, fries, and a burger. And there are I don't know how many endless combinations, but it's pretty easy to order. Um, and I don't know if, if it's because I haven't gone gone to Dairy Queen as much uh, recently. And now the menu just seems infinitely bigger. But um, I didn't get what I wanted. I just wanted a very simple blizzard. That leads me to my next thing I wanted to opine about. I've talked about milkshakes before um, on this podcast, but milkshakes at fast food restaurants, what do you think is the best? I'm really a fan of Wendy's. We've talked about Wendy's blizzards several times. Um, I think McDonald's has changed theirs. I'm not a big fan of the McFlurry at McDonald's and I don't go to McDonald's all that much, but who has the best milkshakes out there? And when I went to Derrick, when I got a milkshake, I got a vanilla milkshake and I'm like, did I make a mistake? Should I have gotten a blizzard? Uh, I don't know. I, I think Shake Shack has great, great concretes and, the frozen custards, the milkshakes are great. I think that Burgerville, or they're located in the Pacific Northwest, have fantastic milkshakes, but I can't recall like who is the best. Who do you think has the best fast food milkshakes? I don't know. Like should I just do a top 10 list? I don't know. I don't even know if I could come up with a top 10 list of what is best. And that's what I wanted to ask you. Where do you think the best fast food milkshakes are? And it's got to come from a chain. There's got to be several of them, like more than eight or 10. And what do you think? What is the best milkshake? Because that is a whole nother debate when you order a milkshake and you get a value meal or something like, I think you need to get both. You need to get a drink and a milkshake if you're going to eat it and quench your thirst with a burger and fries or something like that. But, um, I was just racking my brain as to what is the best. I can say I'm personally a fan of Wendy's, but is that even a milkshake? There's many questions, many semantics about milkshakes. So I'm going to ask you, the listener, to send in some ideas. What is your favorite milkshake place? And it can't just be a dairy place. It's got to be a place that serves food, some kind of fast food. And speaking of things that are cold, I had a debate with a friend recently who Ask me why I like frozen foods so much. And I think frozen foods, and again, we've talked about this before, many times frozen foods are often, or not oftentimes, just better. Great frozen foods are better than oftentimes fresh. And let me explain. Whether it's fish, whether it's things like a spring pea, even like a frozen french fry, you're preserving the sort of perfect ideal ripeness, the, the ideal state of... Starch to sugar ratio, whatever, you know, it's locked in, in frozen. And it's gotten such a bad rap. Frozen food, frozen vegetables, frozen fish have gotten such a bad rap. Why? I don't know. Ask yourself, why do you feel like frozen food is inferior? When I think great frozen food is oftentimes better than fresh, it really is. And you would be surprised how many of the things you eat is frozen. Most of the fish you get at sushi restaurants, let me tell you the truth, is frozen. Tuna at a sushi restaurant more often than not is frozen. In fact, I think you have to, by law, I buy a lot of frozen arctic char. I buy a lot of frozen sockeye wild salmon because I'd rather know that it was preserved at its freshest moment, whether it was on the boat or directly when they get back to dock, than to buy something that I, I find questionable. When a fish is filleted, I have no idea when it was filleted. I have no idea when the fish was caught. I have no idea what state it was in. And it's not a way to judge a fish is by the fillet, right? You need to touch it, you need to feel it, you need to see it. And I always say, when you look at a fresh fish, they always say, look at the gills, look at the the eyes are clear. This is the best way to judge a piece of fresh fish. You just have to look at it. You know it when you see it. You'll know that. That piece of fish or that fish itself is fresh. You don't even have to ask any question. It is almost self-evident. If you have to ask, is it fresh? It is not fresh. But fresh, I should talk to Ying about this, is a whole nother debate. The idea of freshness is just a marketing term. It really is. It is uh, nothing is fresh in so many things we eat or do and dayboat this and whatever. It just is constantly changing. Food is constantly changing. And the one thing that will prevent that change and the food to uh, prevent the food from evolving because it's constantly changing, no matter what, whether it's a potato, a piece of fish, it's constantly changing, which is why it's hard to figure out where to get you know, the best product. And oftentimes, I think frozen foods give you a wider window of quote-unquote freshness, of the best-in-class stuff. And we need to do more, a a reevaluation of what frozen is. Frozen peas, frozen broccoli, delicious. Yes, you have some downside on certain vegetables because of the way the freezing process changes, the sort of cell structure and the water content in vegetables. It, It gets waterlogged not everything is better frozen, clearly. But, you know, frozen pizzas, delicious. Frozen chicken nuggets, delicious. Frozen french fries, I will take that all day long over fresh. But also prepared things like lasagnas and momofuku pork buns, right? That's something that we talk about a lot, like steam breads, breads, frozen. We should really figure out what the bucket's that are good and frozen and and like make that more well-known. And these are the things that are not better frozen. But the one thing we need to really clarify and get rid of is that frozen food is inferior. I hate it. It shouldn't diminish the quality at all. And in fact, we should look at it as better. I know I just went on a rambling, oftentimes I'm sure incoherent rant on what frozen foods is without giving you really any details. But I just want you guys to think about why you might dislike frozen foods. And anytime in food or culturally, you don't have a reason. You don't have a reason other than somebody says so, or culture deems that something is not good, but the science says otherwise. And all the science and data will back my statement that frozen foods, for the most part, for certain things, is way better than fresh, right? I always say spring peas are the best example. I will take frozen spring peas, they're petit pois, frozen at its peak than any fresh pea. I will always take a fresh pea when it's like sweet and perfect, but oftentimes they're starchy and crappy. So again, I want the, a more forgiving window and that's what I think frozen foods do is gives you way more access to quality and that window for quality is much larger in frozen. And I just went on a long spiel. I will shut the fuck up because I'm still formulating how to explain that frozen foods are a good thing. Don't be afraid of frozen. That's all. Um, All right. I've gone on long enough. Um, Here is a conversation with Morgan Neville, Chris Young, and myself. Check out Roadrunner, out in theaters July 16th, film about Anthony Bourdain. And I think more than anything... Uh, When I watched the film, it made me just miss him more. And uh, I'll just leave it at that. Here you go. Our good friend Morgan Neville, Oscar-winning director, documentarian, filmmaker, producer. Our good friend, our partner in Ugly Delicious and our soon-to-be Hulu show that should come out sometime this year. And uh, he has been on the press junket doing a lot of media. I know, because when we were filming, he was starting to do media for the Anthony Bourdain Doc Roadrunner out July 16th. Is that the date, Morgan? That's the date. Yep. In theaters. So go out there, check it out. Um, Is that what we're supposed to talk about? I feel like we talk all the time.
0: We do talk about all the time. We could talk about whatever you want to talk about, but ostensibly we're supposed to talk about the film. And not only is the film coming out, but uh, you're in the film too, Dave.
1: Yes. Yes, I am in the film. Um, yeah, there's a lot to talk about. This, this, a, lot of, a lot of different emotions about this movie, uh, how it got made, why it got made. But before we get into that, how many interviews have you done so far? <laughs> oh, to promote this film? Yeah,
0: probably
2: twenty-five. <laughs>
1: <laughs> what? What is the answer? Let's just get the the the, the regular. Yeah, what, what what's the question? You're like, okay, I've been asked this every for 20, 25 times. What, what is know, it was? You know,
0: how did you end up making a film about Anthony Bourdain?
1: How did you end up making this film by Anthony Bourdain? <laughs> <laughs>
2: Yeah, we're not asking well, it to pick on other people's questions. We're just trying to get some questions. That yes, we yes. Well, actually, you this
0: you know what I'm what I was looking forward to about this is that we don't have to talk about those same things because I remember, <laughs> I mean, kind of my connection to Bourdain, other than just being a fan and having read his books and watched his shows, and was really through you, Dave. And I remember when we started the idea of Ugly Delicious, which originally was going to be Lucky Peach, the TV show, that you went to Tony, Uncle Tony, as you called him, and kind of got his blessing, like the godfather giving his blessing to go ahead and do that show,
1: right? Yeah, I I couldn't, I I felt really uneasy doing a show that, whether it was influenced or not, I think we really worked hard to make sure that it was paying respect, but I know for a fact, we, we do things very, very differently than than Tony, and that was intentional because we didn't want to have that much overlap, but I still felt quite uneasy doing something without his blessing, and I did ask him, and and he, he said, go ahead, do it, you know, and, and I think that's the kind of relationship he had with a lot of people. I, I didn't have to do it, but it was just more out of respect and reverence for somebody that has been very, very close to me and really gotten my whole career started in media because... Mind of a Chef was actually also supposed to be called Lucky Peach and it was going to be an app. And Tony, we had a whole bunch of stuff working on that that never came quite to fruition uh, on media ventures. And I wouldn't be doing TV if it wasn't for Tony. So I felt weird to not have his blessing. So
0: why? Well, I mean, the other connection even before Mind of a Chef was in Medium Raw, he's got a whole chapter about you. And that was, you know, like 2009 or 10 when he wrote that. And it was always my sense that he saw you as some younger version of himself in some way.
1: Yeah, you know, I don't have, I have a hard time <laughs> talking about any of this stuff, but I feel incredibly lucky that a lot of people wanted to be friends with Tony. and A lot of people do consider Tony to be the friend because of all the the shows he's done, so i I felt really weird to say like Tony was my friend and and out of all the people, uh, I somehow still have uh, I will not say guilt, but a weird thing that it, you know he he took a liking to me, so that was very still strange for me to actually accept
0: well I mean i'll I'll, I'll take some of the onus off of you, Dave, because <laughs> I know this is hard for you to talk about, but you know my association beyond Um, beyond being a fan and beyond the relationship of people like you and Cho and other people, I got to know who knew Tony and I understood how much he meant to you guys and started to really understand how much he meant to this whole, whatever you call it, you know, alt-food media world, you know, that he had kind of elevated and championed in so many ways that people know and people don't know. But then when the idea for this film came up, which was kind of everybody in Tony's universe saying we should do a film and we should talk to filmmakers. And they, they approached me and I asked you about it and you, you kind of gave me permission (laughs) to do it too, in a way (laughs) you were like, I think, you know, I didn't know what you were going to say when I told you that this was a possibility of making this film. And you, you said, I think you'd be the perfect person to do this. And that meant a lot to me. And that really gave me some of the confidence I needed to do a project that was really, really fucking hard, you know, with the stakes were hard, you know, because so many people have so many deeply personal feelings about Tony and their own relationships with him that, you know, we kind of charged forward from then. And that was two years ago that we, we started.
1: Roadrunner it's a It's a really I've never seen anything like it, <laughs> and it's a great mm-hmm. movie, but ultimately it just makes me miss my friend so um, and i I think that in the entire filmmaking process when you started, I was just like, I don't know how the fuck you're going to make this film. This is the most impossible subject, and yet you did it.
0: Well, I mean, the thing is you could have made so many different films, and people could make different films about him. I mean, he was such a such a complex person who lives such a big life, you know, and I think one of the decisions I made early on was to start the film around the publication of Kitchen Confidential. So, yeah, and part of it was that his life until then, he had so thoroughly documented in Kitchen Confidential, and I didn't want it to feel like I was playing the greatest hits of the stories people know and the characters people know from Kitchen Confidential. Part of it is there's no footage of that entire part of his life, so it would have been a different feeling documentary. But part of it is that it was really an extraordinary story for somebody in their 40s, mid-40s, to have totally life-altering success, to just have an entirely new life and kind of everything they always dreamt of given to them. Suddenly, he could travel. Suddenly, he doesn't have to work six days a week, 12 hours a day on his feet. You know, like all the things he kind of dreamed about happened. And then... It's a story of, you know, what happens when you get everything you want? Like, does that does that fix everything? And with Tony, he was so complex, you know, that many people talked about this, that he was like this protean character where he was shape-shifting. Like, he was slightly different with different people. I mean, even his different crews he worked with for years and years and years all had really different relationships with him, you know, that he he was not only two-dimensional or th- three-dimensional, who's like a four-dimensional person who is existing in so many different ways. And part of it is like, how do you how do you capture that? And the thing, I took a lot of hints from him. Like, I always feel like when I'm making a film, you know, like the, the instructions are in the box. <laughs> you know, like if you're making a film about Mr. Rogers, then you take hints from what he believes and what he thinks storytelling is and like what's important to him and what are the questions he's asking. So with Tony, you know, Tony, I found this quote of Tony's where he said, you know, most of the world's problems are people trying to search for a simple fucking answer. And I feel like Tony was somebody who was all about gray area and all about not trying to sum stuff up and just trying to kind of understand and ask questions. And like, that was the direction I ran in, which is like, let's just run into the gray and kind of embrace it, you know, and and the film to me is, is about questions, you know? And I think people can come up with their own answers out of it, but I think that's what Tony believed in.
2: You know, it's interesting that you talk about it in, in terms of this second act of, of Tony's life where he got everything he wanted at, at an age where you don't really expect that to suddenly happen to you at 43 or whatever. And, you know, I think about his death And if you're not Dave, if you're not somebody who is intimately familiar with Tony, if you weren't his friend, his real friend, and and, and also somebody who didn't really understand addiction and and, and mental health and, and struggles with mental health, I think the reason why his death was so shocking to your average person was... Why would he do that? He had everything. He had everything that everybody wants. He had a job where you get to travel around. And and I think the fact that, like, that's that's the flip side of the coin of what you're talking about. Like, what happens if you just get everything you want? Is that the solution? Do you suddenly become a happy person? Do you, did all of your addictions and problems melt away? And, you know, the answer was no. <laughs> you know, but I think that's why people are so fascinated with his, you know, his death. Yeah,
0: I mean, I think, you know, the more I think about it, that so many of the things that were his strengths were also his weaknesses. I think, you know, so for instance, he was somebody who, like, he pushed his crews all always to, like, do better, go more extreme, you know, now this new episode is going to be an Antonioni movie, and then it's going to be a Wong Kar Wai movie, and then, (laughs) and he was tough on his crews because he was even tougher on himself, but he believed that he would rather fail in a big way than just do something that was mediocre, like mediocrity was just this, you know, creative death. And, but I think he, he seemed to feel like living in the middle was a kind of, um, you know, just a, a failure, you know, that, that if things felt too safe, you shouldn't trust that. And so part of those instincts helped his work in a big way, but part of those instincts hurt his life in a big way. So like the fact, the matter that you know, he was such a searcher in so many ways and was always like looking for the next thing. And he was so excited about the next thing. That sounds great. But at the same time, if you're searching as much as he did, you know, he never slowed down. He was always traveling at least 250 days a year that at a certain point, you know, you're leaving something behind. You know, if you're always going forward, you're always leaving something behind. And that, that was something that I just don't think he knew how to draw those boundaries. Like most people do. Most people, when they get older, kind of get a little jaded or kind of say, I'll just, I'll phone that one in or I'll, you know, I don't want to do that or I'll do less or whatever. And like, he just, he kept pushing himself in ways that were both good and bad at the same time. And I don't know if he knew how to separate them. Mm -hmm.
2: Can you talk a little bit about the, the sort of excavation process making this thing? I mean, there's, you know, like you said, you started it, when he, when Kitchen Confidential came out, but there's footage of him like in those very early days. I remember there's an interview where he's in his apartment, you know, he's just so not, I mean, he's camera ready in a lot of ways. He's very like, he's very charismatic, but he's also just so uncomfortable there. Like going through, I mean, obviously, most of his travel life was documented because that was his job. But like, can you talk a little bit about piecing this all together?
0: Yeah. So there was a, a guy right, I'm not sure if it was after his New Yorker kind of excerpt, chapter came out, which caused a big stir. And then the book came out. Um, but early, early on, a local photographer just picked up a camera and started making a documentary about Tony that he never finished. And he shot Tony for that first kind of year when Kitchen Confidential was taking off. And we found him and he had 60 hours of footage of Tony, hmm. you know, long before Tony did television. You know, where you see him in his old apartment and just like seeing him hanging out there with his books, wearing a Jane's Addiction (laughs) t-shirt. And he has an Elvis Costello song in his answering machine because the phone keeps ringing. You know, it's just like the texture of what his life was like is there. And it just made me, it was like the last moments of his old life. Like it was the the end of that, the kitchen days of his life where he was still working in the kitchen throughout that time. And then when the book hit, things, he says it changed fast. And I think, I think it did. It was like, you know, within, certainly within a few months, his whole life was different. I mean, he was suddenly on a plane by December of that year, starting to shoot Cook's tour, you know, and he had a new book contract and everything else. So it was kind of amazing as a filmmaker to find that footage. And it's part of why I wanted to start the film there. And then you know, again, with his story was so big and there was so much stuff and so much footage and so many stories I didn't include in this. And so many other people I talked to that aren't in the film who were great, but it was just trying to condense it. So, you know, I think we had something like 20,000 hours of footage, which is insane. Um, And trying to kind of find the moments, the needles in the haystack of where you see him being him, You know, I mean, he was always a version of himself, but something I noticed in the footage, and his crew talked about this too, that often when he would sit down with somebody, and there's even a moment of it with you, Dave, in the the documentary, where when he would first sit down to shoot something, he would just start going on about himself and what's happening in his life and be really open, and then other people would open up too. It was like his crew said, oh, it was like his technique, is was like just to be totally confessional and open right from the get-go. And then they never used that stuff in the show, but it's all there in the footage of him just talking about what's going on in his life. Yeah, one of those moments um, was with you guys having hot dogs, Dave.
1: Uh, I I remember that day well. Um, And that was like right around when I started to hang out with him quite a bit. But I think for me, when I thought about the prospect of you or really anybody at the onset of making this, was like, I knew Tony from my perspective. And I knew pretty early on that almost everybody had their own Tony Bourdain, particularly in his universe. And as you got to know some of his idiosyncratic behavior, his neuroses, his personal life, I was just going to be like, I don't know how the hell, I don't know how you do this. Because it could be a 10-hour PBS documentary and still not cover all the entry points that you could have, could have gone into. So in some ways I was like, Morgan, this is an impossible project. So I know you said that you started around the tour or the beginning post life of the book, but like, how did you decide not to incorporate, you know, his relationship with his family and, and all, all these things. Cause that's what I was like, I, I don't know how I, how you could have done it and, and you did it because it still has to be a movie. You know, two hours long.
0: Yeah. I mean, the movie's 119 minutes. (laughs) And I know Tony was a big fan of Citizen Kane. It's the same running length as Citizen Kane. (laughs) So I was like, if Orson Welles can do Citizen Kane in 119 (laughs) minutes, we can do Tony (laughs) Bourdain. Um,
2: (laughs) That's amazing.
0: But, you know, and there are hints of, you know, you meet his brother and you get hints of his childhood and what that was like. But honestly, you know, that was one of those things that, people often think, you know, a person is completely formed by their childhood. So all the answers to all their neuroses is just, you know, their relationship with their mother or whatever. And we talked and talked and talked and talked about this. And I interviewed people about it. I don't actually think he was, I mean, he says in the film that, you know, I resented my parents for their bourgeois love of me, you know, and them (laughs) being, his parents were, You know, I know his mom was maybe tough, but his dad was like a kind of French intellectual who, you know, kind of had um, a middling career in a record label and a couple of other places in Manhattan, but, you know, was cultured and would listen to records all the time in books and movies and, you know, brought home a 16 millimeter print of Dr. Strangelove when he was 10 years old and showed it to him in the living room. (laughs) You know, so, you know, I think those were, they helped shape him, but I don't think... I mean, I think in a way, the thing that shaped him even more than his family was the time he came from in that, you know, he came of age in like 1970, you know, so it's not quite the hippie world. And, you know, he was going to Vietnam protests sometimes with his parents and kind of the, the anti authority kind of lefty fight for the little guy, screw the government. Don't trust anybody over 30. Like he came from that generation mixed with the fact that, you know, getting things like LSD in high school was totally normal at that time, which he, you know, partook in, you know, he got really into drugs and was funny and hung out with a group of older kids all through high school. But I think the fact that he came from that moment, like between the 60s and the 70s, was actually really informative of how he thought about about the world and And even, I think, how he thought about some of his, you know, personal habits, too. But that, we just kind of barely get into that because, again, there's so much to do. And what I came back to was that, you know, I'm not writing a book. I'm not Wikipedia. I'm just trying to figure out what makes this guy tick. Like, what, it's a psychological portrait. I just tried to think of it as much as anything. Like, I'm never going to win trying to tell every story. So let me just really try and just understand how this guy thinks. And that became my kind of North star.
1: And I know you watch every single moment of his life that was captured on film. And the funny thing is like you, people watch even the edited stuff. Right. And I think people have this weird memory that Tony Bourdain was this incredibly charismatic, telegenic, perfect TV host. And just this world traveler that knew how to do it all and had the perfect protocol for every place. But if you watch the first sort of three years, the first season, especially it's (laughs) incredibly bad. It's terrible. Really bad. (laughs) He's really, really bad at it. What do you think you saw that made him get better? Do you think that was just Tony being hard on himself or was it just the reps? I mean, I think it was,
0: I mean, I think everything got better. He got better. He got more comfortable. Um, the camera work got better. Like it just got less cheesy and less like home movie like, but I think his writing and his voice got stronger and stronger. And it's, it's interesting because after he died, they finished a few episodes of episodes they had in the can that they had never finished. And there's no narration in those episodes. And in watching them, I, I kind of remarked to the producer of it. I said, there, there's kind of a melancholia to to watching those without his voiceover all over them. And they said if you actually go back and watch a lot of the episodes, if you take out the voiceover, it's there. And I think the thing we don't really think about is how much that whole show rested on his point of view and his voice. I mean that was that is the show in many ways. Like yes, there are great scenes and great visuals, but the reason people watched it was because they wanted to see what he thought of things or see, you know, him react right. to something. And that just can't be overstated. Like that was, that was his thing. And I think his voice was the thing that, you know, his writerly voice. I mean, that was, he was a storyteller and, and he said, he always said that the the only label he liked was writer. When people called him chef, he said it made him very uncomfortable because he hadn't been in a kitchen in years. And that was not really what he wanted to be known for. He wanted to be known as a writer, I think, first and foremost. And I think the writing and the narration of those shows and the books are the things that he was proudest of
2: well I I mean it's crazy because I kind of can't imagine your film without his voice present too right it plays the voiceover plays such a huge role and it's just that was it when you when you <laughs> and we talk all the time about how we don't use voiceover on Ugly Delicious or any of the projects we do with you and how much harder it is to make things this way. But by that same token, I can't imagine his shows. I can't imagine this movie without just hearing Tony, you know, and like you said, people want to hear what he has to think about it. I almost want to hear what he has to say about his own story, right? That's why it's so compelling to hear him talking in your film as well. I mean, um, he was
0: his own best subject. If you go back, he wrote so much about his journey, like medium raw, his second kind of autobiography talks about everything that happened to him in the first 10 years of his success. And, and he wrote articles and he, you know, like he was his own best subject and his own protagonist of all these stories. So he had a lot of really trenchant insight into himself. Like he could Mm be harsh, you know, and very open and very truthful about himself But at the same time, and, you know, there was even a moment just when we were, like, kicking around ideas at the beginning when I started to see how much he had told his own story. I was like, you know, is there a world where you just do this whole film with just him talking? (laughs) And then at a certain point early, you know, very quickly, I just said, well, the problem is, as well as he could see himself, he still had blind spots. Mm -hmm. Like, there were still things he couldn't see about himself. And I think those became the areas that, you know, became the kind of the gray that became the, the stuff that really led him down the road to suicide. I mean, I think not understanding things that he should have understood about himself was, was fundamentally the problem. There's a moment in, um, in the film that to me is like the most essential, which is Tony talking to Iggy Pop. And Iggy was like one of Tony's heroes. You know, he loved Iggy. And he says to Iggy, you've lived this whole life. You know, what really just thrills you now? And Iggy says, well, to be loved and to feel love and to appreciate the people that give love to me. And that was exactly what Tony needed to hear and what I think Tony could never really feel. Like, I think, right, that was just when I saw that moment, it like hit me in such a big way, because I feel like that was the thing. Having spent now so much time with so many people in Tony's life, and so many people cared about him so much, and seeing how much love and care they all had for him, seeing that he had a hard time receiving that. He couldn't, you know, I don't know, you know, and again, we can kind of psychoanalyze it, but he felt uncomfortable just accepting what maybe he would feel of as like the kind of, you know, the trite, safeness of just being like a, you know, a happy guy (laughs) or a loved guy. I mean, I know (laughs) he had all kinds of problems feeling happiness, and he talked about them in the film and other places and in his books, even, you know, he was somebody who definitely had a lot of depressive moods. But, but I think part of that was he had a really hard time feeling happiness. And I think, really, what that means is feeling feeling love.
2: Apple Card is the perfect cash-back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co forward slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City branch, subject to credit approval. Terms apply. Hey, Dave. Yeah. I I know you said that this movie was hard to watch because it makes you miss your friend but i mean i'm just hearing i don't mean this in a jokey way at all but just hearing morgan talk about tony in this way like i know you had a lot of conversations with him to this extent but is part of what makes this hard the parts that you see in tony's life in yourself in some of these struggles too
1: well that's the thing is like i don't ever want to impose my whatever similarities uh, but i see them <laughs> I I think I can empathize with the seismic shift in his life and the growing responsibilities he had. And I think ignorance is bliss. And it's very true. And I just feel like the burden of being Tony was just a lot. And you know, I I, I don't know, like did you get a lot of video? This is gonna seem like a non sequitur, but it's not. Did you see any of his clips where he's just trashing Emerald, Morgan?
0: Oh yeah. Oh, yeah. And I had a whole scene about it, which is maybe where you're going to go. But, you know, I talked to David Simon, who I have nothing but respect for. And I am a huge fan of his. And I had a whole scene in the film that I had to cut because it didn't fit. But I it meant a lot to me, which was the story that David told me about when Tony became a writer on Treme. And Dave, you were part of that. You got roped into that. And... But they're, you know, for years, Tony was trashing Emerald. We even have some of it in the, in the documentary as kind of a sellout. And then on Treme, they have Emerald come on the show and he gives this speech that Tony wrote, which is basically the argument against everything Tony had ever criticized him about. (laughs) And it's a beautiful speech about. You start a restaurant and then you have people depending on you and then they're feeding their families. And at a certain point, it's not about the, you know, money or success. It's about trying to help the people on your boat that you're the captain of and you're trying to protect. And I've heard Dave, I've heard you talk about this. I, I felt this as somebody that runs a production company over the years too, this sense of responsibility. And he gives this beautiful speech that Tony wrote for Emerald to say. And, um, I love it. I love it. So even though it's not the documentary, everybody should go watch that, watch that
1: speech. And that's exactly what I was trying to explain is I got to know Emeril, particularly during those years. And I saw the burden of responsibility because I was like, dude, you're so rich. You have it all. And he's like, I don't, you know, you don't like, you don't understand. I have to keep on doing this, even if I don't want to, I don't have a choice. And I was like, I don't understand that. I have no idea what you're saying. That's the most ridiculous thing I've ever heard. And he's such a nice guy. He was so open with his wisdom. And I know Tony, and, and a lot of times Tony's trashing of people made it very difficult to be friends with people. And I remember that whole period too, when Tony was writing the scripts with Simon and doing Treme. And even before that, I think you began to see Tony make some amends with his past because he was able to better empathize with the burden of responsibility that someone like Emerald had and I think I, for me I don't know just watching the film like I don't know if you agree or not Morgan it's like at some point he just didn't get to live his life anymore and, and that's the craziest thing like I think when people think about Tony they think of him as their version of Tony and I think Tony understood that extremely well that he was this avatar for people. And while he didn't have this business like Emerald, but he did have 0.0 in the production of Teens, but I think the greater responsibility was being the Tony Bourdain for literally the world. And I think that just crushed him over time. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean,
0: that was something he asked of himself, and I don't think anybody else did. I mean, really, we talk a lot in the film about the idea of kind of being normal or being cool, and he had this again, this like old punk rock idea of like, you have to walk the walk all the time. And he always talked about, you know, that he could never just put his name on a pizza or, uh, you know, any, any of the offers that came up to him where he could just sell out. Like it'd be fine. He could have done a lot of things and not be judged in the way that he would have judged himself. I think he, he held himself to a standard higher than anybody else. And I think that, you know, so, you know, the fame part of this, I think is is contributive. But I don't think it's it's really the thing at the end of the day that made him unhappy. He wasn't happy before. You know, it was it it certainly made it worse at times. But I think what he did and the kind of what that yeah, like I said, the standards he held himself to were the ones that were the hardest.
2: To live up to I, I'm just I'm, I'm sort of thinking about what you're saying and what Dave's talking about the sort of expectation placed on his shoulders and, and just it, or responsibility to be Tony Bourdain, which people feel at this at this level and and you know I didn't have a relationship anywhere near what Dave has with had with Tony. I you know he published one of my books. I knew him, but you know you sent me a cut of this movie a few months ago, I think, and asking just for sort of notes and thoughts. And I mean, I, I, you, you basically didn't know you were sending, it's like a, a psycho fan, right? Like I told you afterward, like Tony Bourdain is one of maybe two people in my entire life I can call a hero. Um, I don't have a lot of heroes in life. And, and, you know, I sort of, un, I unloaded on you to be like, this was, I, I thought it was a beautiful film transformative for me as an experience watching i can never watch it again like i'll just i can't i don't have that kind of emotional strength but i'm thinking about that and 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 the way that everybody who was a fan of tony's felt like they owned a piece of him that that he was like dave said their avatar and i'm one of those people who you know who if you're in food media i i defy you to tell me that some part of you didn't want to be tony bourdain you know and and so that was certainly part of my experience Uh, whether it's tony or mr rogers or anybody who has this kind of cult of personality when you're making a film like this about somebody's life how much do you think about that expectation or how much do you think about the idea people have in their heads about somebody and and how fiercely they hold on to that like does that affect you as a filmmaker I mean,
0: you feel, again, the kind of the pressure of don't fuck this up. Yeah. But I think to me, what don't fuck this up means is not to sell people what they're buying or what their preconceptions are, but just be as kind of clear eyed and honest about it as you can. And again, with Tony, I felt like his kind of belief in like not varnishing things and like brutal honesty was something that just gave me permission to say, like, would Tony have liked this film? Like, I think he had a love-hate relationship with, like you said, with attention. And there's like a moment early on where he says... Um this early, early on in his career, and he said, Oh, I'm gonna do Oprah tomorrow. And he says, Oh, I hate myself. And then he smiles and like you can tell he loves it <laughs> too, as much as he's complaining about it. Mm-hmm. You know, and I I uh, you know, when I think of my own mental conversation I would have with Tony, you know, I, I am I did make a documentary about Keith Richards and Iggy pop. So <laughs> I'm like, you know, I have some cred probably with him, but I felt like his and I hope he would have respected just the fact that I was trying to be as honest as possible about it, even if it hurt at times. And I think, actually, the people in the film, yourself included, Dave, like, felt that permission from Tony. The sense of, like, Tony's not the kind of friend you would—you just want to say, oh, yeah, he was just, he was a nice guy, and oh, he was so cool, and, <laughs> you know, like... It's just that level of bullshit just seemed not what tony would have wanted from his friends and so i can't, i could feel people talking to me feeling like, like i could see them processing i mean in fact you dave i could see you processing a feeling of like okay i just i need to be honest here because tony always respected honesty
1: yeah it was it was hard i mean what it was it probably what a year and a half after he died i i know you were interviewing a bunch of people and i just was like How's anybody that Morgan's filming not just crying through the entire interview process? I, I don't remember anything I said other than I came home and I saw Grace. I was like, I just cried the entire time. I have no idea what
2: happened. <laughs> Dave, Dave hadn't seen the cut, and he asked, he asked me, he's like, is, is anybody else cry during their interview? <laughs> and to be like, I think some people cry. It's okay, Dave. You're not the only yeah, one. <laughs> you're definitely not alone in that, Dave.
0: Um. There's another moment that was important for me to put in the film that is part of you, Dave, which is having made the film, I got to spend all this time with people from Tony's life who were still coping with the grief of losing him and all these complicated emotions that suicide brings up and all that. And I both wanted to kind of, I wanted an audience to feel the impact of that because I felt it spending time with people, but then also understanding that we can get to the other side of that. And so I had this idea, a bunch of people, David Cho, Josh Hami were just talking about being stuck for a long time. You know, and I think everybody in their own way and kind of trying to show that people can start to put their lives back together or move on or just, you know, there is another side to the creator of grief. And I asked you, Dave, for a, um, for a video of you and Hugo. Which I put in the film, just, and I asked everybody in the film to send me videos just so you could, cause I saw that too. And I think it's important to remind ourselves that, like, it's okay, you know, like as painful as things are, we have to remember that they're, we can get beyond it because I think hopelessness is the kind of thing that leads, leads to things like suicide. And like, I'm not hopeless in that way. And I think, I think that. That's a kind of blindness when you find yourself that hopeless. So I just wanted to reflect a little bit of that in the film.
1: I think it's okay not to have a clear understanding of what happened. I think that's part of the forgiveness is just to accept that it happened. And that that's really it. And like, never easy to think about. Like whenever I see Hugo, at some point during the day, I always think about Tony because of the conversations that we would have. And I definitely want to be a better father because of the conversations we've had. It was so hard to watch this film and just think about it because of all the different ways, like, like Tony knew that I, like Tony knew all this shit about so many people, yet he couldn't do it for himself, you know? Like, I know what Tony said about me to the people around, in, in his inner circle. Like, dude, this guy... We almost have, I, I would just imagine Tony saying like, we just have to like capture this fucking lunatic right now because it's probably all going to end soon, you know? And like, I think Tony understood that because that's how he sort of lived his, his life. And the idea of suicide, I know it's something we talked about too, Morgan, just people that have come up to you. I don't think there is a magic bullet. And if, if you feel less clear about it, about what happened, I also think that's okay you know like inevitably unfortunately everybody seems to know somebody or somebody they're close to that ended their own life and it's there's no rhyme or reason and i think that's the absurdity that you just have to sort of accept and i think that's what the film does and you have a choice you have a choice to either use that and wallow in forever as an excuse or you you choose to like grow from it and that's what I think the, the, the film does so well is to portray that it's a choice. And it's honestly a choice that Tony had. Tony knew that everything was an either-or proposition. And I think that proposition is presented to everybody. Um, whether they watch this film and they should or not is uh, when you think about it, you're not supposed to have a clear-cut uh, idea of what the fuck happened. It's just,
0: it's just, it is. You know, there's this one scene that he did this episode in Buenos Aires where I guess in... in Buenos Aires, they have more people in psychotherapy than any other place on the planet. So Tony thought, oh, well, we'll do this therapy scene. It'll be fun. And I got the raw footage of it. And it's an hour and a half of him. Like, he's joking at the beginning, and then he stops joking. And then he's just talking and talking. And he says there that he, you know, as a teenager, when he got into trouble, he had to go to therapy because his parents made him go. And in watching that, I just think, God, here's a guy who really needs to talk to somebody and to give himself permission. And I know Atavia, his wife, kind of talks a little bit about it, that just weeks before he died, he actually started therapy for the first time. Uh, But that's something that you made a conscious decision to work on a long time ago. And I wish Tony had made the same decision.
1: Yeah, I mean, this could be a very long podcast, but um, I think Tony thought he was doing his own. And again, you're right, just starting off this podcast the way you described, Tony's strengths turned out to be his greatest weaknesses slash failures. I think you'd agree that, yeah, his ability to make his life therapy was so successful that, again, like I I think Cho was right. He was able to white-knuckle all of this until he couldn't. And, and I think that's sort of what I mean by, he, so he was a victim of, of not letting anybody down in terms of who Tony was. I don't think Tony had, all, but that's also not true. Tony, you know this, Tony asked for help a bunch. It just never publicly. And I think public the public Tony could have could have used that. Like, hey man, I need help. But I, I don't know. I, I still think about it all the time. I just don't have any idea. Well, and I know the
0: times he did, I mean, when the film you know, Cho reads an email that he got from Tony, but several other people say at various times they got emails from Tony asking for help in some way. And that when they would follow up, he would say, oh, no, I'm fine. You know, like, oh, you know, I just, it was a bad night. Like he would have these moments where he would just feel like he needed help, but by the next morning, you know, it was like, no, no. You know, he would, again, he would paper over it. He was so good at kind of, papering over the cracks, you know, again and again in his life. And, you know, sooner or later, the bill comes due for those things.
1: I mean, I, I, after he passed and I was just connected with a bunch of people, I can't imagine from your perspective, seeing how different he treated everybody. Like he talked to Cho when we were together, it was like three brothers, but individually his conversations with Cho were always so fucking dark that I was always like, you don't, he never talks that way with me, but I, I, now I think about, it, he's like, cause he knows that he's trying not to lead me down that road and he knows chosen a different place. But uh, I don't know. I, I still think about that a lot is if individuals decided to not allow him to paper over something. And I think for anybody that's listening, you should be a lot more in tune with the people that you think might be in trouble, but they say they're okay. I think you should just follow up. And it's better if you may piss them off. And here's the thing. I know that if I follow up with Tony on that stuff, he probably would have ridden me out of his life. You know, Morgan? Yeah. I mean, like, he had that tendency to be like, well, I'm cutting you out of my life because you're pissing me off in ways that are not tolerable anymore. And I think you sort of have to maybe potentially risk that. I I don't know.
0: I mean, it's something else, you know, and you've talked a lot about this, but like... I don't think it was an accident. He became a chef because I think it was a world full of people that don't fit in to, to the, how most of society works, you know, and I think it fit his strengths, which was liking his OCD-ness and like running a kitchen. He was really good at that, but also, um, just the the repetition and trying to get better and the kind of camaraderie that, you know, we talk about it some, but he talked about all the time this, you know, I think what chefs talk about all the time, the, the sense that you're on a a pirate ship together, you know, and he was the lead pirate. Like he always talked in that metaphor. And even when he started the TV show, the way he ran the crews were very much like a kitchen. yeah And, and even the crews who I've become friends with, you know, Helen and Tom and Mo and people and, and I remember when I, because they've only really worked in Tony's world for a long time. And and I remember when I first met them, they were like, oh, so when are you going to get angry? <laughs> like, when are you going to snap at me? Like, what, what ticks you off? And I'm like, I, wh- why are you wondering about that? And it was like, well, that's that's what we're used to. Like, that's how we understand if we're doing something good or not is, you know, getting yelled at. And I even remember when I first started working with you, Dave, at the very, very beginning you were like, don't tell me anything good. Just tell me when I'm fucking up. <laughs> like, like I don't react well to praise. I react well to criticism. And I'm like, oh my God, I see that in Tony and the kind of the, <laughs> the legacy he left too. But I think that
1: also comes from kitchen culture. Would you agree though with Tony? And if anybody could sort of armchair psychoanalyze Tony with the universe of cooking and being a chef and the, the culture that he helped perpetuate and then later tried to help fix and correct. But the idea of Tony really gravitating towards the kitchen. And you, you see that in the film, right? The, the, when the fish guy's not on time and he's like so fucking pissed. And do you think it, Tony needed the illusion of control? Because I've always seen that in my career. When you run a kitchen, you're not able, no one's going to give you the responsibility to run anything outside of a kitchen. Nobody would even trust you to be a delivery person. You couldn't do anything. And for some reason, you're able to have an ounce of control and decision-making. And it's your own little universe, as Tony would say, a pirate ship. And I think that was the drug uh, ultimately, and also what he tried to carry out in all of his life from cooking to food. But Tony ultimately wanted control over a life that he had no control over. That's how ultimately I see it. And the only place that he had control, which is why he always likened everything to a kitchen, was a kitchen. That's it. You know, we're yeah. all control freaks.
0: Yeah. I mean, he, you know, another thing that lots of people talked about that's not in the film is that he was like absurdly punctual. You know, mm-hmm. whenever you were supposed to meet him, he was always there 10 or 15 minutes early. Like always, like doesn't matter if it was a 5 a.m. call on a shoot like nobody ever 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 saw him be late and and it's part of this sense of like responsibility like i think he felt i don't want to screw this up or i have a a lot of people are counting on me i think he kitchens are like this but i think his show became this too that by having this kind of regimen and working as hard as he did it became a way to kind of Give his life a structure that wouldn't let him get too far off the rails because he had to be responsible. He had to be there on time. He had to do everything people were counting on him for. But you know, as Joe talked about too, you know, that's that's still addiction in a way. <laughs> you know, it's just maybe a slightly healthier version of addiction.
2: Yeah, it's just you know, hearing you guys talk about the like, like you said again, Morgan, his strengths were his weaknesses. You know, what what made him so compelling to watch was his his just living on this knife's edge for in all ways you know and not settling for the middle ever you know i just we talk sometimes about chefs and you know dave i remember walking around with you one day just trying to imagine like just trying to say like is there ever a chef who can finish their career as a chef is there somebody who can start their career as a cook and retire at retirement's age as a chef and the answer is Generally, no. You don't know anybody who's who works from the time they're 18 to 65 as a working chef and then retires as a chef. And just hearing you talk about Tony, I don't know. I just it, it is so painful to think his death, his suicide defines him so much now, but it defined his work. And, but like I'm hearing you talk and I'm like, was there another way for Tony Bourdain's story to go for him to find peace in some way and step away from work and I don't know. Like, it just, it just seems I mean, too tragically inevitable. You know, it gets
0: a confidential. If you read that book now, like the end of that book, he's kind of like, my life's over. Like I've kind of done it, put me out to pasture. You know, he was starting right. to get arthritis. His knees were hurting. You know, he was 43, 44 and still standing on his feet six days a week, 12 hours a day. So he saw the writing on the wall and like, didn't know how he was going to get out. So he has this whole opportunity and new life. I mean, I don't know, you know, so one question is what would have happened to him if Kitchen Confidential had never been published? And I don't know if it would have ended well. There's definitely, like you say, kind of a, just a natural life cycle to being that kind of a chef. And and I don't know, I, I, I do not know what would have happened. But, but when he had all the opportunities of the, the book and the TV show and everything else, he often talked about and fantasized about checking out and just, you know, he even had a book contract for years that if he wanted to go to Vietnam and sit on beach for a year and write a book about it, he could do it. If he wanted to do less episodes of his show, he could do it with no money penalty at all. Like he had written these things into contracts of like, I can do less. I can check out. I can take time off. I can do a sabbatical. And maybe that's all he wanted was to have those somewhere in a contract because he never did any of them. He <laughs> never he, he never traveled. He never did one less episode a year ever. Yeah. You know, and that's the thing. So I feel like I mean, he could have. He,
1: he worked like a chef to the end of his days, really. And the person, I can't remember who, and I thought it was the most accurate description when he said, basically, Tony from 43 till, you know, the day he died... That was the deviation in his life. The trajectory he's on was basically where he was going to wind up regardless. Mm-hmm. And I tend to think that's true.
0: Yeah. I mean, there's this quote, you know, the Chris Bourdain, when La'all became a kind of de facto memorial place for him. And I heard stories about people driving from as far as Tennessee to put things up in memoriam for Tony in that restaurant. And when they came down, Chris his brother made sure he got everything and he brought an armful of things there and read them. And there's one thing in the film that I put in the film that a poem, somebody wrote that said, uh, many people don't know that Icarus also flew, but I don't think of him as failing as he fell. I think of him as only coming to the end of his triumph. Mm. And the fact that Tony had 20 more years of doing great creative work was maybe, That was the gift that maybe had the book not come out, he wouldn't have lasted nearly as long. Like, I don't know. But I think if you can think of the work he did, thankfully, as opposed to like, oh, we didn't get more, I think is a better way to think about it. You know, we got what we got and what he contributed was huge. We should be thankful for it.
1: And with you watching the thousands of hours of footage and all of the interviews that you've done, and it's something that I try to not like impose how I think and how I live, but I tend to think this way, and wonder if you agree. After the book and the the success, right? Like the moment where you're saying, like, even he liked the idea of doing Oprah, even though he grimaced at the idea simultaneously. Sometimes I think about Tony as someone that was literally living on uh, just playing with house money. Like everyone asked, what would you do if you had one one year left to live? I think. Tony didn't know what that year would end and what that would be when it would end, but he knew it would end. So he was just gonna, he was living life with house money. And that's how I always interpreted it. Like I'm just going to take this as far as I can until I can,
0: you know? Yeah. There's an interview I saw of him. It's not in the film, but somebody asks him, what would he do if he got sick or kind of at the end of, you know, if he couldn't do this anymore. And he, gives this answer of like, oh, I get a bunch of heroin and go to a beach and, <laughs> you know, just like nod off till I die. Like it was this insanely dark answer. And here's somebody who is in had not been a junkie in many, many years, but I think he still just had that idea of kind of, yeah, as you say, like the fact I made it this far is a miracle and like to try and prolong it, isn't up to me like I'm you know I'm just gonna keep spinning the wheel and we'll see what
2: happens you know having now spent all this time inside of Tony's head inside of his life having seen uh, you know spoken to all these people about the work he did you know does it change your outlook or approach to the stuff that we're doing together now at all does it inform <laughs> does does that bleed over happen to you as like as the filmmaker yeah I, I'm getting you a leather jacket Dave I hope you don't
0: mind <laughs> Okay. <laughs> I did yeah, it. I uh, made it. <laughs> no, I mean it's there were, I mean I remember in the beginning when we started Ugly Delicious we made this conscious decision we're not going to do narration. Like there's just we never want to compete in that way with with Tony. Um that and that you were really bad at reading narration at the time, <laughs> Dave. You've gotten much better, but <laughs> so 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 bad at it. So bad. But in watching the show and kind of the, the looseness of it. Like, that's the thing that I think he was just so good at. Like, he had it so dialed in. And even when I talked to the crew about just how tiny his crews were and kind of how nimble they were, you know, it's just like, that. God, that's the way to do it. Mm-hmm. You know, there were certain episodes where he they'd just be winging it, <laughs> but th- that comes across. Like, I love mm-hmm. that part of it. And so... You know, I think the more we can be in the moment, you know, the more, I mean, what somebody, Chris Collins says in the film that Tony figured out early on in making TV was that the secret to it was not to be a TV host, but just to open himself up to experiencing things and let us experience it through them. And I think that's that's a thing you just can't lose on, of like, just actually learn on camera, actually be surprised, actually, you know, experience things. Like, that's real stuff. And that's the thing I'm always chasing when we do it. So, no fake
2: scenes. <laughs> no, but it's, it's just funny because it's it's so, like, that, that exact aesthetic, that exact sort of mantra is present here, too, like, in how we're learning about Tony. Like, it's, it, it's absolutely right. Like, the real sense of discovery, real, honest things happening. And it's, you know, it's why we love making stuff with you, Morgan. Man, Yeah, you guys too. (laughs) Well, I I know this is not easy to
0: talk about. I heard Dave was saying, Oh, God, do I have to do this? Do I have to talk to Morgan about this? I know, I know it's hard. And you already talked to me for the documentary, which I'm very (laughs) grateful for. Um, But thanks, Dave, for talking again.
1: No, I I, I wish I was a little bit It's just, this is never going to be easy for me to talk about. So I I know you understand that. And I know for a lot of listeners, it's not easy for them to hear. But I think they should watch the movie regardless. Um, It's an amazing movie. And I'm saying this not because I'm your friend or I work with you. Before that, you were a world-class filmmaker. And I think that's just what is evident here. You took an incredibly difficult subject. So difficult that I'm having a hard time talking about it (laughs) right now. And, and you made it a movie that is no bullshit involved, right? So I think that is a miracle. People are going into this knowing what happens, and yet you're still going to watch it and you're going to come out the other side. Yeah. And everyone still has to make their either or choice. So I think it's a beautiful film, and I'm glad that you made it.
0: Well, thank you. Thank you, both you guys, for talking to me about it.
2: Thank you, Morgan.
1: Thank you, Morgan. I love that guy. He's the best. Check out Roadrunner, July 16th. It's in theaters. A great, great film. And if you miss it, it'll be out on, I believe, HBO Max in a month or so. And go go check on your friends. I think if you listen to this, do me a favor. Go call a friend and just ask them how they're doing. I will. You should as well. And if you, there's someone in mind that you think they need help, just, just give them a call. Just tell them, you know, giving them their support and oftentimes the the hard questions that you need to ask somebody are so hard that you don't and um, the things that need to be said oftentimes aren't said and and I'm trying to remind myself that you should have these tough conversations with the people you care about as hard as they are so if there's someone you think that you haven't spoken to a while give them a call and and just ask them how they're doing and uh, just be a support system and They don't have to have their world in shambles for them to feel like everything's in a bad place. Oftentimes, the people that have everything going on great need help the most. Um, And asking for help is the fucking hardest. It is a great, great, courageous thing to ask for help. And I think one of the things we need to change in this culture is asking for help. It is not a sign of weakness. I think if you really think about it, it is one of the most... It was one of the strongest things you can do is to admit that you need help and that you're you're weak in something. And uh, anyway, I'll shut the fuck up. Give us five stars on our iPod page and uh, we'll talk to you next week. Have a great weekend, everybody. Get vaccinated.